Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. Even though there's moments where people go, oh, man, props, man, you really skewered them. You really gave it to them. To me, one of the things that I think has been missing from all this dialogue, especially because everything gets reblogged and, you know, so-and-so eviscerates the right and vice versa, is personal sort of empathy and putting your own skin in the game. That was this week's guest, Hassan Minaj. He's a comedian. He's a correspondent for The Daily Show, and he's a Muslim-American. At this summer's Republican National Convention, he went looking for some of that empathy. That if Trump were to become president, I'm going to get deported. So I just wanted to say goodbye to all the delegates for, uh, from the states that I'll never get to visit. So I went up to, you know, the delegate from Alabama and gave her a big old hug and said bye. I had her sign my American yearbook. I asked her if she would be my pen pal in the camps. I don't know what type of Wi-Fi we'd get there. It's so all that sort of stuff. But I wanted to look her face to face in the eye and go, I'm not just some esoteric number that you read in a Breitbart article or that you see in a Facebook status update about how Islam hates us and your brown neighbor has come to kill you. Like, look at me in the eye in this moment and you don't think I'm a bad person, right? I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Hassan Minaj. Last June, he gave a speech at the Radio and Television Correspondence Center. The crowd, mostly the members of Congress who were there, didn't exactly love what he had to say about congressional ineffectiveness. Before the speech, he was a little worried about what he was going to say. Then he got some advice from former Daily Show writer Trayvon Free. You're not there to, like, make Mitch McConnell feel happy about himself. No one ever gets invited back. So if... If you have an opportunity to say something and you're one of the rare comics that gets chosen to do this, say something. We'll talk about that, plus his experience as a Muslim going to high school in Davis, California after September 11th. And he'll tell me a truly stupid joke. Later, I'll talk to Margaret Wappler. She's a culture critic for the L.A. Times, Rolling Stone and The Village Voice. And she's a panelist on our podcast, Pop Rocket. She just released her first book. It's called Neon Green. It centers around a family in 1994 who, among other things, have a spaceship parked in their backyard. She'll explain, hopefully why, in a book about a family who has a spaceship parked in their backyard, why we never actually get to find out what's inside the spaceship. I'm so interested in mysteries and preserving the mysteries and really thinking about the texture of the mystery itself as opposed to trying to crack it open and solve it, that there was no way I was going to do something like that at the end of the day. And I'll tell you about the best response to one of the lamest responses to what's happening in the NFL and the country right now. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. When was the last time you really confronted someone? Like, they're standing in front of you and you have to say something that could make both of you really uncomfortable. And then you go ahead and say it. My guest, Hassan Minaj, grew up Muslim and Indian American in the small city of Davis, California, near Sacramento. 
He was confronted early on by things that made him uncomfortable, like hearing his dad get a death threat over the phone just after 9-11. He went to school at UC Davis, where he assumed that he would study and get a good job, one where he wouldn't spend too much of his time confronting anything. But while he was at school, he ended up watching a friend's copy of the Chris Rock stand-up special, Never Scared. And he saw something that kind of blew his mind. Here was Chris Rock standing on stage talking about things that mattered to Hassan, confronting them in a way that Hassan just hadn't ever seen before. Things like race and what it feels like to be a minority alienated in our country. He was so taken by the special, he ended up getting involved in the comedy scenes in Sacramento and and in the Bay Area. He met people like W. Kamau Bell and ended up influencing him a lot. And after winning some stand-up contests and a few minor roles on TV, he landed a job at The Daily Show. He's now a senior correspondent there. Last June, Minaj was asked to host the prestigious Radio and Television Correspondence Dinner in Washington. He was in front of an audience that was mostly made up of members of Congress and the people who cover them. It was a few days after the massacre in Orlando. He was staring at a group of people who he felt had dragged their feet on gun control. He was scared, but he said something. You know, we look to you guys as our leaders. You make almost $200,000 a year to write rules, to make our society better. Not tweet, not tell us about your thoughts and prayers, to write rules to make our society better. Now, Hassan... I was just talking with my producer before we went on the air about the last time I saw you, which was backstage at a television pilot. Uh, yeah. And uh, it was unfortunately a pilot that didn't go, but it was a very funny show. Yeah. And uh, I had just I had just done a bit on the show and you were just about to do a bit on the show. And yeah. I was sitting back there, you know, behind some curtains looking at some monitors as they right. went from cue to cue. And I had this thought, which I didn't express to you at the time, uh, which was – uh, just kind of looking at you and how handsome you are, <laughs> I gather from your show that maybe that was something you had to work at. <laughs> yeah. It, it wasn't until recently where, you know, hey, uh, Indian culture, yoga, all of this stuff, meditation, this stuff has become sort of new, nouveau riche, chic, cool, cutting edge. That period of time, you were sort of – you know, lumped into, you know, this weird, you know, quickie mart terrorist territory, coupled with the fact that, hey, look, Cal Penn hadn't broken yet. Aziz Ansari hadn't broken yet. Mindy Kaling hadn't broken. Kumail Nanjian, all these diverse, new, interesting brown voices hadn't broken yet. So just the sheer possibility of me ever being on like television, it seemed impossible. So were you thinking when you were a teenager, when you were in high school, were you thinking, I'm going to get out of Davis? Or were you thinking, I'm going to get some graduate degrees and a good job? Yeah. I was going to do the interlude tracks on college dropout. (laughs) I was going to stack up some degrees and then, then, yeah, just get a a good job. And so that's that's, that's really what I thought was going to happen. And it wasn't until – we didn't have cable television. My freshman year of college at UC Davis – a buddy of mine had downloaded Chris Rock's Never Scared, and this truly dates this. That was 2004 that special came out. I go into his room, and he's watching it, and it clicked for me in that moment. I go, oh, stand-up comedy to me. Oh, it's just funny speech and debate. I had done speech and debate in high school. Ah, that's the dorkiest thing I've ever heard anyone say. Yeah. 
But Jesse, <laughs> isn't it? funny speech and debate. I, mean, I, see, I see someone do stand-up like, that's totally like integrals. <laughs> this is my calling. Uh, yeah, it was. I was like, this is funny speech and debate. And that's when I went on my deep dive and the, the comedians that I fell in love with were great speech and debaters. I think Greg Giraldo may he rest in peace, would have been would have been amazing at forensics. And uh, so all, all those, you know, I started thinking about that. And it wasn't until after doing it 10, 11 years that then, you know, it all clicked together with The Daily Show. But I, I never thought that that was going to happen. I, I, I really, yeah, I, I thought I was just going to go to grad school and yeah, and, and get a job. I think that the fact that you started doing stand-up comedy in uh, Sacramento in the Bay Area yeah. seems significant to me because it's a scene that is not quite big enough to really break down into sub-scenes. Um, but it is also, you know, it's a place that's full of all different kinds of people and so on and so forth. Yeah. And and for that reason, it seems to me like a great opportunity for especially comics of color to learn how to share their experience with those kinds of audiences that we talked about. You know, it's the place yeah. where W. Kamau Bell can learn to do jokes for an audience that's 50% white, 20% black, 20% Asian American, 10% Latino, whatever. Right. Right. Like I can figure out the cognitive framework to make this joke work. I, I, I got to translate this experience. Right. Where Arch Barker and Al Madrigal and yeah. what, whoever the people are, are all going on together in a row. Yeah. I mean, I got I got this awesome ex- experience where I can't believe some of the lineups I got to perform on. Me, Ali Wong, W. Kamau Bell, Al Madrigal, Shang Wang, Louis Katz, Moshe Kasher. It's like, look at the, you know, it's literally like a walking joke, like a Jew, a black guy, da, 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 and I'll walk into a bar. Like, and yet our audience might be an audience in like Fairfield, which is even more like Booney-ish than Davis or Sacramento. And, you know, I was doing the thing where in comparison to the Bay Area, Sacramento was a scene that was really kind of looked down upon, like the comics that came from SAC to SF. Even though some of them are great, you know, Mike E. Winfield is a phenomenal Sacramento comedian, a bunch of guys. It was still one of those things where it's like, oh, you're, you're, you're coming from Sacramento. But that idea, I was almost like a road comic even when I was starting, even when I was starting in my hometown because I would drive to San Francisco, drive to Fairfield, drive to Vallejo, drive to Pleasanton, Sunnyvale, you know, the East Bay, everywhere. You're doing shows in Vallejo? Yeah. At, the, at, the, at Pepper Belly's. Sick oh, with it comedy club. Yeah, Sick with it comedy club. Yeah, owned by E40. Yeah, it's at Marine World Africa USA. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. just some fun Vallejo stuff we know, folks. Yeah, yeah some just Vallejo inside jokes. <laughs> you guys will get it. Then hit up the outlets at, uh, you know, Vacaville <laughs> on the way back. You guys know. You guys have, that, that have trekked sure. 80 West. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Listeners overseas. <laughs> um. The first time I met you, you were a guest on my comedy show, Jordan, Jesse, Go. Yes. And um, at the time, the project that you were working on was a documentary series funded, uh, I think, substantially by the Gates Foundation. Correct. Uh, about comedy around the world. Right. You traveled to the absolute furthest points of stand-up comedy. I yes. I mean, you went to what? You went to South Africa. Where did you go? India and South Africa. And yes. I wonder what um, – you know, what you saw when you got there. Because, you know, we think of stand-up comedy as a very specifically American form. Correct. 
Um, so what does it mean to do stand-up comedy 6,000 miles from here? When I went to South Africa, the thing that blew me away was people's ability to joke and talk about race. There wasn't this idea of it's, – it, it's amazing. When I got there, the comedians were so envious of our ability to have freedom of speech. They're like, man, we love your guys' podcasts, your roasts, your TV shows because you guys can just eviscerate your politicians and nothing will really happen to you. In India, that wasn't the case. If you go after certain politicians, they'll slap a lawsuit on you. Cops might show up. Things might happen even though it's a democratic country. There's still certain – there's severe censorship in certain capacities. And what I was so amazed by is that these comics in South Africa and India still were taking their shots despite the risks. They were like, no, we got to talk about politics. And what blew my mind is that specifically in South Africa – Black comics were on stage making fun of Afrikaners, the people that had literally imprisoned them and put them through apartheid to their face. And both sides were laughing. And to me, I was like, this type of dialogue is still a niche thing in America. You know, like to have an audience that's that sort of quote unquote woke where both sides, the oppressor and the oppressed, can sort of like equally throw, you know, barbs and laugh at the ridiculousness of the past. It really was, to me, grounded in this article that I recently saw in the New York Times where it said that 67% of white people refused to post articles about race on social media. It reminded me of going back and I'm like, man, that's why I missed doing stand-up in Johannesburg and I missed doing stand-up in Bangalore and Delhi and Bombay because I, I see comics there taking real chances. And I see audiences be, kind of being down. Afrikaners are a, are a minority in South Africa. Correct. Um, they have they have to think about their own race every day walking down the street because there's a lot more non-Afrikaner people around. Correct. But if I'm walking down the streets of Los Angeles, there's mostly white people even in Los Angeles. Yes. Uh, and especially here in Culver City. Yeah. And uh, so I don't have to even think of myself as white. I don't even have to think of – I could just be uh, neutral. I'm right. just a guy and then right. other people – race is a thing other people have. Correct. Yeah, it's just this uh, – I talk about it in the show, in the video game of life. I'm lucky. Like I think privilege is something that all of us can recognize. My dad is from this generation where he feels if you've immigrated to this country, there's this thing called the American dream tax that you pay. You're basically going to have to endure some level of racism and if it doesn't cost you your life, you lucked out. And for me – I'm like, no, well, hey, I'm born here. I'm an American. And I was in honors gov. And I learned right here on the American dream receipt that all men are created equal, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Like I shouldn't have to endure any of that. And I kind of explore that idea in the show. Who's more right there, you know? And I've even recognized my own privilege despite the things that I've gone through growing up. Hey, sometimes I start to think like my dad. Oh, boo-hoo, you couldn't go to the dance with that girl or you couldn't do this or they called you a camel jockey. At least your spine isn't getting shattered in the back of a police wagon. And then there's no justice being served to that. So, hey, if this is all you have to pay for being here, you lucked out, Hassan. Be grateful. But then I pivot again and I'm like, wait, isn't the fight, isn't the struggle, isn't this – the uncomfortable conversation that we're having, isn't that where progress happens? 
right? If we just stopped at like, well, women can vote now. Let's not talk about the equal play, equal pay thing. Let's just give it a rest. It's that little it, – we keep moving the needle forward. So hopefully we can live up to the ideals that we initially wrote. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to comedian and Daily Show correspondent Hassan Minaj. He's currently on tour doing a one-man show called Homecoming King. Let's talk a little bit about you, Hassan, uh, hosting the Radio and Television Correspondents Association uh, Congressional Dinner. Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, this is something that you did recently. Yeah. So uh, let's let's take a listen to a, a clip of you hosting the the Congressional Correspondents Dinner. Um, so you you've been you've been sort of joking about the presidential candidates. You've been joking about the media. Yeah. Um, and now you're turning your attention to Congress. It's so mean of me to talk about a job that you guys will never have. I mean, oh, 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 every member of Congress wants to be president. Let's be real. There's a senator named Sheldon Whitehouse. That is the most ambitious name for a title you will never have. That's like my name being Hassan, head of Homeland Security. It's just not happening. No. Let's just just be real. Everybody here in the media, they're hard on Congress. They're hard on you guys. They say you're a do-nothing Congress, but you guys do a lot. You guys do, don't let anybody tell you otherwise. You guys uh, go to fundraisers. You guys host fundraisers. You have your staff set up fundraisers for you to host. That's three things right there, and that doesn't even include all the time you spent trying to repeal Obamacare or not passing gun control. That's five things you guys do. What I love about that clip is <laughs> the the precipitous decline in laughter through the course of yeah. that joke. <laughs> I'm listening to this and I'm like, Hassan, you're trying really hard. <laughs> you can he- Jesse, you can hear I'm I'm trying so hard. Well, as you turn from funny name joke, yeah, to pointed critique joke. Yeah. You just hear people going from like ha ah, to like ha ah, ah, ha ah, ha. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And it was one of those things where I realized, you know, working at The Daily Show, so many of my friends, whether working at our show or Sam's show or Larry's show, we're all we, – we are all like screaming out into our base of people that will shower us in retweets and love. This was a rare opportunity, like three days coming out of Orlando to speak directly to members of Congress. I mean it's a big deal to meet with your congressperson for 10 minutes. Like if you write a letter to your congressperson's office, I'm going to be in Washington, D.C., can I shake hands with you? Yeah. If they say yes, that's a big deal. Yeah. And you got a job where your job is to stand in front of all of them. Right. Plus all of the media that cover them. Correct. And tell their story. Correct. All at once. Right. And there's another layer to it is that the people that were watching on you know, the hotbed that is C-SPAN 3 – it was – there was this other layer where I was like, I also have to contextualize this to the people that are watching at home. Why, why congressional inaction is such a ridiculous notion. You know, as a stand-up comic, everything that you do is about that audience that's in front of you. you right. know, that's why there's a live audience at Saturday Night Live and there's a live audience on so many sitcoms. Right. It's because when you are doing comedy – you are beholden to those people standing in front of you Correct. and getting them to laugh. Yes. So 
it must have taken some psyching up for you to decide, I'm going to do some jokes that are going to be for the people on the other side of the camera. Yeah. Well... And when I say on the other side of the camera, I mean at home watching television. Yeah, or that I don't think the folks from C-SPAN were super into it. <laughs> right, 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 right. And they were sitting on the dais. Um, if you They're watch, like, God, I, I want to get over to book talk. Right, 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 right. If you look at the the video, I think the clip is on YouTube. But when they actually call me up, you can see I'm visibly nervous because the whole night up to that point. Everybody was high-fiving each other. They're like, media, you do a great job. Congress, you do a great job. Now let's give it up for the comedian. And I was like, okay, I'm going to say some stuff and it might not go over well. And essentially for the first 18 minutes, it was comedy and the, I pivot to the last four minutes. And I, you know, it's basically like, look, we don't need your thoughts and prayers. The first clip that we heard was a, a ways in after yeah. you've done – all of your uh, – some Congress people have distinctive manners of dress or funny names. Sure, jokes, yeah. Um, that you were – you know, that's in the contract. Um, <laughs> right, right, right. And uh, you basically – so so this this was all – this all happened just a couple days after Orlando. Yeah. And, um, and so you have just – you have just – talked about Congress getting donations from the National Rifle Association as, as we head into this clip. There are 294 sitting members of Congress that have accepted contributions from the NRA, and that doesn't even include the millions of dollars from outside lobbying. So before I get up here in my liberal bubble and I ask for gun control and universal background checks and banning assault rifles, we got to be able to have the conversation. And right now, specifically Congress, has blocked legislation for the CDC to study gun-related violence. We can't even talk about the issue with real statistics and facts. So I don't know if this is like a Kickstarter thing, but if $3.7 million can buy political influence to take lives, if we raise $4 million, would you guys take that to save lives? So in that, I, I, there was a joke that had no laughs, Correct. that literally got zero. So Correct. that's, you, I, you know. Can hear, I could hear the echo through these headphones. <laughs> I could hear the echo of that mic. Dude, Jesse, I'm like, I'm getting nervous for me now. And that was a long time. I'm like, oh, man, you're really tanking, buddy. You are tanking up there. Because you're a comedian. You are hired. Right, right. You are hired you're the entertainment. You're hired. You're there to entertain but people. I, but, but also at the same time, I remember I had a really great conversation with my buddy Trayvon Free, who's a who's a former writer for The Daily Show. He's a writer on Any Given Wednesday with Bill Simmons now. Trayvon was telling me – and I remember the sentence. Trayvon goes, dude, you, you don't want to be Trey Gowdy's friend. You're not there to like make Mitch McConnell feel happy about himself. No one ever gets invited back. So if – if you have an opportunity to say something and you're one of the rare comics that did that gets chosen to do this out of the handful that they have they've asked in the past, say something. I'm Jesse Thorne. You ever find yourself watching or listening to the news and wondering if something's missing in the way that we talk about politics in this country? My guest, Hassan Minaj, does. And he's figured out what it is. He'll tell me after the break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org. And NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message come from Blue Headphones. 
For 20 years, many of your favorite artists have used Blue headphones in the studio. Now, Blue's radical headphone design lets you hear new details in your favorite music. Find out why Esquire magazine called them the perfect headphones. Visit the store at blue-headphones.com and use coupon code NPR for a special price. Blue, Carpe Eardrum. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Check out the NPR One app for your phone. You can listen to news and stories from your local station and find new shows and stories to make your commute less awful. Great hand-curated podcasts and stories are always ready when you are on NPR One. Find it on your app store. NPR O-N-E. What's the deal with Brexit? Have you seen Happy Valley yet? How do British people pronounce Edinburgh, Leicester, or Norwich? Not like that. Are you tired of getting your world news from reliable sources, often with no puns or sexual innuendo? Why was there a butcher's hat haunting Coronation Street? What's Coronation Street, and why is Dave Holmes obsessed with it? International Waters pairs a team of comedians in L.A. against a team of comedians in London in a pop culture battle royale. Join us once a fortnight to hear the best comedians in the world trade jokes and stories and maybe even learn something at the same time. International Waters with me, Dave Holmes. Find it at MaximumFun.org or wherever you download podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to comedian Hassan Minaj. You've gone to both conventions. Yeah. Um, and... It seems to me like to some extent that in some way you are there to make friends, that part of what is within your control is um, showing enough kindness and empathy toward people who are well-meaning but, um, you know, ignorant or – and I don't even mean ignorant in a super judgmental way, but just don't have experience dealing with – uh, some of the problems of America that you care most about. Yeah. To me, one of the things that I wanted to add to the Daily Show or even the, like the one-man show is I want to put, you know, even though there's moments where people go, oh, man, I'm, props, man, you really skewered them. You really gave it to them. To me, one of the things that I think has been missing from all this dialogue, especially because everything gets reblogged and, you know, so-and-so eviscerates the right and vice versa is personal sort of empathy and putting your own skin in the game. And when I did this clip at the RNC called Hassan's Farewell Tour, of that if Trump were to become president, I'm going to get deported. So I just wanted to say goodbye to all the delegates for, uh, from the states that I'll never get to visit. So I went up to you know the delegate from Alabama and gave her a big old hug and said bye. I had her sign my American yearbook. Um, you know, I asked her if she would be my, you know, my my uh, pen pal in the camps. I don't know what type of Wi-Fi we'd get there, and so all, all that sort of stuff. But I wanted to look her face to face in the eye and go, "I'm not just some esoteric number that you read in a Breitbart article or that you see in a Facebook status update about how Islam hates us and your brown neighbor has come to kill you." Like, look at me in the eye in this moment, and you don't think I'm a bad person, right? And even their racism was a little, little adorable. They're like, no, you're one of the good ones. Your family is Muslim. Correct. Are you? Yes. What does it mean to you? That's a really great question. Um, for the longest time growing up, I felt like my childhood and adolescence was really defined by America's war on terror. And 
growing up as a teenager and then in my 20s, it was like, wow, Islam was looked at as something that was like so foreign and so other and so weird and scary. And it wasn't until, you know, as I got older that I realized, no, like Islam has very deep roots in American history. See slavery. 40% of the slaves were Muslim. I realized how important Islam has been and Muslims have been in, to America and for America with the death of Muhammad Ali. I think for too long the conversation has been around this idea that there's you're American or, the, or you're Muslim. And Muhammad Ali, and let's not whitewash his legacy, was all of those things. It was amazing. That was amazing. He was a champion. He was a black man. He was a Muslim. And he fought for what he really believed in. And all of those things. Not just an American Muslim, but an American who chose to be Muslim. Exactly. And had to give up a lot to make that choice. And and, and can you imagine when he he announced that my name is no longer Cassius Clay, I'm Muhammad Ali. I mean it it really did shake up the world. It It was crazy at the time. And it continued to be throughout his career. But when he passed, I was so proud to be an American Muslim. Because I was like, that this country gives you the potential to do that. Now, it was a huge uphill battle, but he was remembered as a champion and as an American. And it's great that in the wake of his death, also Kaiser Khan at the the DNC presented himself on stage and talked about the death of his son. And people have to reckon with that. In the wake of their Islamophobia and their fear, they have to also realize that people like Kaiser Khan have sons that are sacrificing their life for this country. How do you feel about the relationship between your identity as a Muslim and uh, the fact that I think a lot of people, when they think of Muslim, they're not thinking of a Desi person. They're not thinking of a Southeast Asian person. They're not thinking of an African person. Right. They're thinking of a very specific – ISIS. Yeah. Right, yeah. It's literally, what is it, 1.8 billion? So it's like one out of four people in the world. One out of four, one out of five is, is Muslim. We are here. We've been here. And yet it's believed that it's this margin thing. And I think what's interesting is I felt a lot of solidarity with the Latino community as well, where people feel like, I don't really know a lot of Hispanic people. It's like, no, trust us. They're everywhere. You know, especially when when politicians talk about the Latino community, they talk about it in a monolithic way that does not reflect the Latino community in the United States, much less in the world. Sure. That, you know, like they, they talk about they talk about the experience of being Latino as though being, uh, you know, white skinned Cuban in New York is the same as being a dark skinned Salvadorian in Los Angeles yeah. or uh, or, you know, a, a Puerto Rican whose exactly. family lives in Vermont or exactly. whatever. Yeah. And it lacks like the nuance and depth and layers. It's, I think the same thing goes for Muslims around the world. It's like, yeah, I do look – my life experience is different from, say, an Egyptian Muslim or a Palestinian Muslim or – we're united through this shared sort of religious experience. But there's nuance and, and layers to all of that. And, and look, I think that when politics gets involved, it does really speak to it in like one broad stroke. Right now, you talk about specifically with the Latino community, they just mean – Illegal alien Mexican illegal aliens, but they're lumping everybody into that. So it's 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 weird, man. I imagine it must have been 
an odd experience. And I'm uh, this is a pure flight of fancy for me. So yeah, tell me if this was not your experience, but. You know, I am imagining that, you know, September 11th happened when you were, what, like a teenager, right? Yeah, I was a sophomore in high school. Yeah. So I can only imagine that when September 11th happened, your relationship with all these white people around you really changed in terms of what you were to them that you you know up until you're 15 you're thinking of your primary point of difference as being the color of your skin or the fact that you're Indian. Yeah. Um, or Indian American, I should yeah. say. And then, uh, you know, September 11th happens, and all of a sudden, maybe the first category of other that you are is Correct. Muslim. Yeah. That was such a clear shift. And then another thing happened. September 12th, I remember that night, my dad held this, like, executive meeting at our dinner table. He was like, Hassan, whatever you do, don't tell people that <laughs> don't tell people that you're Muslim, and don't talk about politics. And I was like, cool, I'm just going to just hide it. Thanks, Dad. Our phone rings. There's these kids. They're prank calling us. I grab the second phone. I'm like running to the second phone. And then these kids are like, hey, hey, you camel jockey, where's Osama? My dad's like looking at me. And he's like, what? I don't understand what you're saying. He's like, I'm sorry. I think you have the wrong number. No, I'm going to kill you. Click. Now I'm like freaked out. And I'm also embarrassed because my dad's looking at me. And I'm his son. I'm this guy who can walk two different worlds. I know Desi culture. I know American culture. And I basically watched these kids ridicule and threaten us. I just let it happen. We sit back down. Foomp, foomp, foomp. I hear these thuds outside. We run outside, me and my dad. The Camry, our car, all the glass is shattered all over the driveway. So I'm running up and down the cul-de-sac. And I'm looking for them. And then I look into the middle of the street and my dad is just like sweeping up glass out of the street like he works at a hate crime barbershop. Like, oh, the next customers are coming. And he's so calm. Like he has this sense of calm. I run up to him I'm like, why aren't you mad? Like what's wrong with you? And he says this thing in Urdu. He's like, Hassan, like, these things happen and these things will continue to happen. This is the price we pay. You, as a teenager, experienced a really formative uh, incident of racism. Right. And uh, that was at like uh, – uh, it was at prom. Yes. Around prom. Yes. So obviously like the most important part of any adolescence, adolescence. Sure, you know, sure, Or sure. at least designed to be. But it was also first love really. Right. It's like the first person I love, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, the denouement of the story is you – Essentially seeking personal revenge right, and having to come to terms with reconciliation yeah. <laughs> instead. Yeah, and realizing that anger and revenge isn't really the solution. I mean, look, I can point to you and say that you're wrong. That doesn't fix, that doesn't fix the problem at hand. Really, the, the question of the show is – is, hey, in the wake of San Bernardino, Orlando, Paris, could 2016 Hassan Minaj still go to the dance with 2016 Bethany Reed? And to me, I see the state of the country, and I'm saying that's a 50-50 ball. We're like in the midst of history. Like this is stuff we're going to tell our kids about. We're going to be in history books. The 
you know, the, the photos won't be black and white. They'll be in color. But it's like, do we want to tell them that we were on the right side of history? The photos will be of you. You're very handsome. Oh, thank you. <laughs> right. Um, that would be so creepy if I was like in a scholastic textbook. The picture, so... the picture on the front of the history book uh, uh, will be you and me together. Yeah. And it will say, uh, and it will say, twenty first, twenty first century hero Hassan Minaj, <laughs> stop, and it. a white guy. Actually, I, I hope that photo has both of us with our Jordans next to each other and be like, look. Yeah, we have not either. addressed our we matching not, shoes We have not even talked about that, man. So, I, so what, uh, what Air Jordans are you wearing? I'm so? wearing the Air Jordan 1 band. This okay. was the first black and red colorway, the infamous colorway. It's coming out again this September 2nd. But this was the first shoe that you know Michael Jordan infamously wore and the, the league banned it because it didn't have enough white in the shoe. Very fitting because we're talking about race in the show, in the show a bunch. Should we do, uh, like do a quick knock-knock joke? Or? Mm-hmm. So the panda bear walks into a bar, and he says, let me get a Coke, and let me get a burger. Guy, guy gives him a Coke and a burger. Panda bear eats the Coke and the burger. He walks out the door. The bartender goes, hey, are, are, what are you doing? The panda bear turns around, pulls out a revolver, fires two shots into the air, and now he's about to close the door of the bar. The bartender grabs him and goes, hey, panda, you cannot just walk out of my bar like that. Are you out of your mind? Panda Bear pulls out an encyclopedia, gives it to the bartender and says, look it up, buddy. Bartender opens the encyclopedia. It says Panda Bear. Eats, shoots, and leaves. Jesse, it's been an honor being on this podcast. Thank you so much, man. Hassan Minaj's new one-man show is called Homecoming King. It's traveling the world at this very moment. All the tickets and information are at homecomingkingshow.com. You can, of course, also watch his pretty mug on television uh, and YouTube and whatnot, if you like. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. What do you remember about the summer of 1994? Kurt Cobain had just died. The internet was something you were sort of just starting to be aware of. You probably called it the information superhighway. Oh, and also those flying saucers were landing in people's backyards. Margaret Wappler's new novel, Neon Green, is set in that totally familiar world that's also completely unfamiliar. The Allen family live in the suburbs. Mom's a lawyer. Dad's an activist. The kids are teenagers. And also, there's a flying saucer in their backyard. It hums. It makes noise. And nothing ever comes out of it except for a weird goop. Everyone in the family is having their own crisis. Dad's obsessing over the environment. Mom is trying to figure out her health. The teenagers are being teenagers. And in the backyard is this flying saucer making the grass die. Margaret Wappler is a longtime entertainment journalist and other types of stuff journalist. She's also one of the co-hosts of Pop Rocket, the sister show of this show, Neon Green is her first novel. Margaret, welcome to Bullseye. Thanks for having me, Jesse. Of course. So what's so great about 1994, Margaret? <laughs> what isn't great about 1994? <laughs> I think it was the cusp of the internet age. We hadn't quite been taken over by the information superhighway yet. And 1994 also has this sort of second coming of the environmental movement or at least a new spark in it. 
where Al Gore was the vice president and everyone thought he was going to usher in some kind of new day with environmental policy. And that didn't really quite happen. But the father of the Allen family is very hopeful when the book starts that that it's going to be a new day, a new dawn. Do you think you could identify enough things about 2004 to write a novel set in 2004? It's funny you ask that because I really have thought about, okay, what would you say about 10 years ago? And it's still too close. It's still very front and center in, in our memories that I I feel like it would be very difficult. I mean, I, I guess like 2004, it'd be like a lot of American apparel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is a kind of nightmarish vision if you really think about it. Yeah, just <laughs> – you could write the first great Electro Clash novel. That's right. We're all waiting for that. How much of this – your fixation on this period has to do with the point that you were at in your life? I mean I know that if I think of 1994, what I think about is you know eighth grade and French kissing for the first time or whatever. Yeah, it has a lot to do with my own life. 94 was when I graduated from high school. That whole early 90s time was, it's really a marker to me because I also had a personal tragedy where I lost my father in 91 and my family was left reeling from that loss uh, all throughout, you know, the 90s basically. So that whole decade, I feel like when you go through a loss and a trauma like that, so much of what you're experiencing gets hardened in your memory in a different way. How is it different? For one thing, I kept a lot of journals. I kept a lot of notes. I was really trying to process my grief at that time. And when you're trying to process something, you are more alive and more tapped into the visceral world around you. And that included these really strong emotions that I would have at that time of loss and grief but then also happiness, you know, that's always a thing that people don't talk about sometimes with grief is that when you do experience happiness, it really shoots right through you like this bright light because you've been in a dark place so, for so long. So I think when it's that extreme, there's something about that that just gets crystallized in your memory in, in a way that no other time can. Can I ask you the circumstances of your dad's death? Yeah. Uh, basically, he died of a brain tumor, um, rare brain tumor that spread to his lungs and through his lymph nodes. And it was it was a long struggle. It took a, took about four or five years, um, a lot of surgeries, a lot of chemotherapy. Uh, and then in 91, he passed away. I'll finish my conversation with Margaret Wappler after a break. She'll tell me how the death of her father while she was still in high school affected the writing of her novel, Neon Green. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Good news, everyone. There are still a few tickets remaining for the London Podcast Festival, September 22nd through 26th. We've just announced a dazzling new addition to the Bullseye lineup. Sharon Horgan, creator and star of the hit shows Pulling and Catastrophe, as well as a new show, Divorce, which launches soon on HBO. Comedian Josie Long, Veep creator Armando Iannucci, and musician Romare round out the Bullseye lineup. But the fun doesn't stop there, friends. International Waters and Judge John Hodgman tickets are still available, too. Do not sleep on this. Feast your eyes on the juicy full lineup and grab your tickets right now at MaximumFun.org. 
Hey, Sam Sanders here from the NPR Politics Podcast. Mark your calendar. Monday, September 26th is the very first presidential debate. And the next morning, we are inviting you to skip the cable news hangover and get caught up with us. We'll have new podcast episodes the morning after every single debate. So you'll know what happened and what it means by the time you get to work or class or finish walking the dog. Whatever your morning routine, make us a part of it. The NPR Politics Podcast. Subscribe or listen on the NPR One app. All right, back to the show. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Margaret Wappler. She's a culture critic for the L.A. Times and Rolling Stone. She's also the co-host of our sister show, Pop Rocket. Her new novel is called Neon Green. One of the things that is really central to Neon Green, your book, is how difficult it is to process something that is both outside of our control and one of the biggest things in life, like death. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder how how losing your dad changed how you feel about your own sense of agency in your life. I think when that happens to you, and I was 15 years old when my dad died, it does give you a pretty dark knowledge that you don't have control and that really bad things can visit your life And it's really about you reacting to it and bouncing back from it um, and not so much trying to control it. It's really more opening and accepting what happens to you. And I think, you know, of course, that's a hard lesson to learn really at any age. But, you know, 15 was pretty drastic. And I mean, that's something I played with in the book. You know, some of the characters... I mean, in the beginning, you see the spaceship land and Ernest, the father, is so frustrated that this thing has chosen uh, his backyard to land in because his son entered a sweepstakes and won to get this spaceship from Jupiter to visit. And he's so frustrated, doesn't want it there. He's trying to control what it does at all times. But the spaceship just doesn't care. It doesn't want to be controlled. It won't be controlled. And I think that was, uh, you know, a metaphor to me for a lot of what happens in life, that these, this something will just come into your world and visit you and land and take up space and occupy your personal private space and take over. When you think about the weirdnesses and the pain of your own childhood, mm-hmm. um and the kind of weirdnesses that happen in the closed closed systems of families, does it make you want to have a childful family of your own? You're you're married and don't have children, more or less. Well, I love families. I definitely have an interest in having a family. I find all families fascinating because, as you were alluding to earlier, they are their own unique structures. They have their own dysfunctional or functional, however you want to define it, ways of being with each other. And I'm always fascinated, too, as a as a person who comes from a family of five that, I mean, five siblings, I should say. I have four older brothers, myself being the fifth. Um, that when you take one of us out of the equation, like the whole dynamic shifts, or if one of our spouses is there, the whole dynamic shifts, if our mom is there or not there. And, you know, all the sort of 
you know, who's dominant in a certain situation, who is more submissive. I mean, these kinds of dynamics to me are really fascinating about families. And I had a lot of fun figuring that out with the Allens, um, because I do think, too, that it shifts according to situation and according to what's going on in the book and, you know, what exactly is happening. I mean, you, you see Cynthia have a much stronger sense of how to run a family in a way, how to be a working core member of the family as opposed to her husband who is a pretty divisive figure in a certain kind of way. He really knows how to be himself and his family has adapted around that self, but it's hard for them. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to author Margaret Wappler. Her new novel is called Neon Green. Did you ever think that you were going to deliver a grand sci-fi moment like, you know, E.T.'s finger glowing or whatever? <laughs> you know, I did play around with uh, some very hardcore classic science fiction ideas with the spaceship, uh, getting inside of the spaceship and seeing what's in there. But Ultimately, that felt like a real betrayal of what the book is about because I, I'm so interested in mysteries and preserving the mysteries and really thinking about the texture of the mystery itself as opposed to trying to crack it open and solve it that there was no way I was going to do something like that at the end of the day. I sometimes I, you know, sometimes I would give it to friends and occasionally somebody would say, but, but, but I want to know what it's like in there. And, uh, I would have to say, well, too bad. Like, why don't you, you know, you have to think about what's in there. What do you think is in there is always the way I turn it back to someone. It seems to me like you, especially as someone who lost a parent when you were a teenager, have some insight as well into what it's like, you know, what it's like to lose one of your mooring points just when you're trying to define yourself and be forced into a situation where you have to think of others when you're at the point in your life when you know, biologically, you should least be thinking of others. Um, and that's what these the teenagers in this book are looking at, that they're like, they're sort of losing their parents. You know, they're, they're, they're losing their mom and they're losing their dad through him doing such a terrible job of managing losing their mom. Yeah, it is true that oftentimes you lose, in a way, both parents because the parent who is the caretaker parent, is so consumed in that role, whether they're doing a good job or a bad job, it's still all-consuming, that they can't really be the same parent that they were to you. Mom's sick. Dad's not sick, but he is, in a different way, out of the picture. In some ways, having a sick parent when you're in high school is a weirdly convenient time because you are so self-centered. <laughs> and I remember having these real this real sense that my life was split in half between what was going on at home with my dad and then what what I would be like at school and at school I was just a completely different person I was preoccupied with having fun and kissing guys and all the things that you want to do when you're a teenager and at home I was giving my dad a bath and you know, opening up his insurer milkshake for the night. And I think that's a really schismatic thing to hold in your head when you're a teenager. But 
And I, and I didn't, it was just my life. So I didn't even think anything of it. But, you know, years later, I really had a moment of thinking, oh my God, that was really strange. <laughs> it was really strange that I never even talked to, you know, my friends that I went to the mall and, you know, went to parties with about what was going on with my dad. I never even mentioned it. They barely knew. It seems like that 20 years of time between 1994 and now, and yes, math fans, it's 22 years. Um, <laughs> approximating here, don't email me. Um, but that 20 years of time is, you know, it's an amount of time that allows us to get some perspective on the cultural past. Um, mm -hmm. But I wonder if it was also an amount of time that you needed just to get enough distance to consider your own adolescence. I think that's true. I think writing about something – I mean I talk about this a lot in classes that I teach for creative nonfiction. That's obviously nonfiction and so it's even closer to your life. You're writing your life. And I always tell people to think about the appropriate time for them in order to write about something well and accurately and without hurting yourself. Because I think sometimes we can write about things that happened in our lives too soon and we need to first process it and think about it and heal from it um, on our own before we dive in with writing. Do you think your next novel is uh, going to abandon speculative fiction and just go straight into like space opera? Just where, <laughs> where the lasers just symbolize lasers? Yeah, I want to just have, um, you know, characters singing arias to the different planets. and <laughs> <laughs> You may be taking this genre's name too literally. <laughs> no, I don't. You know, I love science fiction. I love speculative fiction. I don't know that that will be the only vein that I'll ever work in. I don't think so. I I'm telling me, you, Margaret, if you want to sell some units, somebody's got to be building the ultimate weapon. <laughs> well, and I also need to write a trilogy, for God's sakes. I mean, I hear that's how it's done. Like, there's got to be at least, like, seven books for people to buy and backlog into. Margaret Wappler's new novel is called Neon Green. It's her first She's also a culture critic who writes for all kinds of outlets. And she's also a panelist on MaximumFun.org's own pop culture commentary podcast, Pop Rocket, on which, you know, the deaths of immediate family members from cancer are rarely, if ever, discussed. Well, Margaret, thank you so much for talking to me on Bullseye. It was great to get to talk to you. Thank you so much, Jesse. This was such a pleasure. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's the outshot. So I got to talk to you for a minute about Randy Moss's face. I know this is radio. I can't just show it to you. I wish I could, but you have to believe me. It is amazing. Maybe you actually don't even know who Randy Moss is. He was a football player, a wide receiver. Now he talks about football on TV. And the other day, he was talking on ESPN with Trent Dilfer, Dilfer, also a football player. He was a quarterback. And for context here, Moss is black, Dilfer's white. So the two of them were talking about Colin Kaepernick. He's the quarterback on the 49ers who's been taking a knee during the national anthem to protest racism in America. 
And Dilfer said this thing I'm, I'm about to play for you. And Moss made the face that I've been referring to here. You're about to hear Dilfer talking, but it is important for you to imagine the look that is on Moss's face. Like, you would not believe this look. Football is the ultimate team game, and you want to be a championship teammate. You want to be, you fully want to be bought into having your team have the best chance of success, then you put your team above yourself. And no matter how passionate you are, no matter how much of a burden you have for a social issue, you don't let it get in the way of the team. Moss's face was like, I don't know, I can't barely describe it. It was like eyes narrowed, brows furrowed, mouth pursed, stare at full blast, like full on laser beams shooting out of his eyes at Trent Dilfer. He looked like a cartoon character when cartoon characters have steam coming out of their ears. And it's possible. And I, I want to give them this. It's possible that it was just Randy Moss's I'm really paying attention right now face. But, oh, boy, from the other side of the television, it sure looked like the you got to be playing face. That you must be kidding me face. That this dude cannot be for real face. And this face that Randy Moss made, it went viral. Because listen to this. And the big thing that hit me through all this was this is a backup quarterback whose job is to be quiet and sit in the shadows and get the starter ready to play week one. Yet he chose a time where all of a sudden he became the center of attention. And it has disrupted that organization. It has caused friction and has torn at the fabric of the team. What does that even mean? The unity of the team is more important than racism? Is that what he's arguing? Seriously? Although I respect what he's doing, and I respect the passion and burden he has for this issue, a massive issue, I do not respect the fact that he put himself and his stance above his team because he's not the only one that's passionate about big social issues. I got to tell you, this is a classic white people move, this call for unity. And I say this as a white person myself. We love to tell people who are pointing out racism, who are protesting inequality, that they're trying to tear us apart. But Randy Moss's face says it all. Because us white people, we don't have to live with racism. We don't have to see it. It's transparent to us. We can choose not to look at it. As long as we're not saying the N-word or writing whites only above a water fountain, we think we've done our part. Our skin color means that we can choose to look past wealth disparities or job discrimination or discrimination in the legal system or cultural hegemony or any of a thousand other ways that we're given the upper hand by our laws and culture. But people of color know what's really going on because they live it. Even rich people of color who get to be on TV like Randy Moss. And if people of color say something about racism, we say back, that they're attacking our unity, that they're not doing their part to hold the country together. They're not turning the other cheek enough. But why is holding the country together their job? That's what I think that face meant. This whole you're promoting division thing is a trick. It's a feint. Protesting racism doesn't tear us apart. Racism tears us apart. 
So Randy Moss made that face, that you-must-be-out-of-your-mind face. Listen, here's the deal, fellow white people. And yeah, people of color, relax for a minute, take a break, have a sandwich. This part is between me and Trent Dilfer and all my other white people out there. White people, it's not people of color's job to protect us. It's not their job to make us feel better. It's not their job to end racism. Ending racism is our job. We made it. Let's unmake it. When someone tells you about racism, when someone protests racism, when they point out racism, they are not the source of the problem. The racism is the source of the problem. And we are the source of the racism, and we have the power to change it. So, Trent Dilfer, I believe that you care. I bet you're a good dude. I thought you seemed smart and brave when you played for my favorite football team, the 49ers. Most of us white people are good people of goodwill. I believe that in my heart. But let's be real right now. Don't want racism to get in the way of football? Let's work to end racism. Don't want racism to tear our country apart? Let's work to end racism. If we really want unity, it's time for us to step up. Unity is within our reach if we step up. You know who already stepped up? Colin Kaepernick. That's a brave, multiracial black guy with white parents who knows exactly how this stuff goes down on both sides of this divide in a way that you and me and Trent Dilfer never will, in a way that none of us white people ever will. So maybe we listen to him? Kaepernick's telling us something. He's asking us to do something. Let's listen. Let's take action. Let's take responsibility. This is our problem. And there's no better time for change than now. Okay, that's all I got for white people right now. Sorry for the haranguing. I want you to know that I am far from perfect. I hope you know I love you. And uh, people of color, I hope you enjoyed your break. I love you too. Welcome back. Now, this is for everybody. I have one last proposal for unity. Something that will bring our nation together. Let's all go on the internet and check out the look on Randy Moss's face and laugh our asses off. That's my outshot. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Dan Gallucci. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Kara Hart. Our production assistant is Christian Duenas. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music provided to us by Dan Wally. Thank you, Dan. Thanks also to the Go team and to their label, Memphis Industries. They provide our theme music at the top of the show. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org and find them there or find them in your favorite podcasting software. And... If you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister show, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture, hosted by comedian Guy Branham and featuring one of this week's guests, Margaret Wappler. Uh, Hey, Guy, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Hey, Jesse. This week we talked about the 2000s of pop culture decade. We talked about the death of network television. We talked about the rise of social media. Uh, We talked about uh, hip-hop and pop music and lots more fun. Check it out on Pop Rocket. Sounds good. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 